Hi there, and welcome back to Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. I'm Mark Icero, and I'm very happy that you're listening right now, because this month we're reading On White Violence, Black Survival, and Learning to Shoot by Kim McLaren. And on this episode, you're going to hear from Professor McLaren about her extraordinary piece. Fellow Article Clubber Sarai and I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor McLaren a few weeks back, and she was generous and thoughtful and direct. We spoke about a number of topics, including how she approached writing the article, the questions she was exploring, the importance of the role of positionality, what it means to be a Black woman in a nation of white violence, and what is worthy of being defended. I hope you like the interview. One thing, though, before it starts, we had some technical challenges, so the audio isn't as smooth as usual, which I apologize for, but I can say that the quality of the content is very high, and Professor McLaren graciously agreed to have it published. So here we go. Thank you so much, Kim, for doing this interview for Article Club. It's so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Your piece is wonderful. Sarai and I are here to ask you tons of questions. Sarai, why don't you get us started? Wow. Like, first of all, I really want to ask about your writing process. Like this piece is like, it, it hits a lot of emotional points, but it's technically really written out and it's, it, lo- it looks really thoughtful and really planned. Like your inclusion of specific word choices people make and the repetition of the question, like, why do you want a gun? Like they're really awesome to read. You know, but like thinking about you having that conversation in real time, like having these conversations in real time is like really, really interesting. You know, uh, can you like speaking of the word choices, can you talk a little bit more about this concept of fun? Like the ideas of you were having around this, like this idea of learning to shoot and like shooting in general being fun. Like, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I believe that I was born a writer and there are pluses and minuses that that go with that. Right. Um um, and one of the pluses or minuses is that my mind is always part of part of me is always observing. And even when I'm involved in a situation. So in that particular case, um, you know, even it, it, it happened just as I said, right, I was taking the class and the guy said something about fun and I had a visceral reaction. And even as I had the visceral reaction, I thought, wow, that's an interesting reaction. <laughs> this is what I do, right? My brain is, is partly observing my reactions um, because the association of the word with of fun, with learning, with, with the gun, guns are meant to kill. That's, that's the whole purpose of guns, right? And there's no denying that. People can talk about sportsmanship and marksmanship and all that kind of stuff. And I think I can, as I think I said in the piece, I understand, I understand how one could take some pleasure in the skill aspect of it. My husband does. You also cannot deny the reality of the fact that guns are constructed to kill something, animals, other human beings, whatever. And so for me, it was just incongruous, the use of the word fun with that. And so I had that reaction and I knew that, you know, when I would write about this, I didn't go into the class consciously with the intent on writing an essay. I don't do that. At the same time, I, I do have to say that as a writer, I think Joan Didion said, writer, was Joan Didion? Jo- writers are always selling somebody out. I mean, writers are always gathering information, right? We are always gathering information and trying to make sense of the world. And so I didn't go in intending to write the essay. But when I had this weird experience, like, um, how is what, you know, the question I asked at the end of the first part is a question that I'm wrestling with. I do write to wrestle with my own questions is how did somebody who's like me hates guns, have always hated guns, 
end up being in this class? That was the question that I set out to answer. And that's, that's why I wrote the essay. I was asking myself the question and, and in asking myself the question, I'm asking the audience, the reader, the larger question, because it's not just about me. It's about the society in which I live. Right. So that the answer is not just me. The answer is all of this, this society, which we have created and allowed to exist is part of it. Wow. How long did it take this piece to write? Oh gosh. I don't know. It takes a long time to write pieces, right? My, you asked about my process earlier, my process, I'm working on one now and it's, it's maddening. You know, it's like, eh, you think I, you know, I always think I'm never, it's never going to happen. I have a, I have a friend who, who was a first reader and I'm talking to her yesterday about this piece. I said, Beth, it's, it's, it's crap. It's horrible. She says, Kim, you always say that, right? It, you know, it, it, it's always, you always say that, just send it to me. I'll read it. So it probably took, this piece might've actually taken a little bit less time because it was very targeted. And because I was, I had a lot of, um, I don't want to say emotion, but energy behind it. I knew the question here. How did I end up here? I know who I am. I know how I feel about these things. How did I end up here? So it, it didn't probably didn't take that long. I don't, I couldn't honestly tell you because I don't sit down and just write it in one fell swoop. I write it, put away pieces, move a lot of pieces. So a couple of months, probably it probably took a couple of months. Yeah. The emotion, you know, as a, as a reader, the emotion right from the beginning was so clear. Um, and also one of the pieces about why is it seems like you were really thinking about like space and spaces and positionality as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. as, as a, as a black woman in a very white space and even like in the two rooms too. So there's the sort of the classroom where you yeah. learn, where you identify, um, who the classmates are. And right. then later on when you're actually shooting and it gets really intense yeah. there, can you talk a little bit more about this notion of space for you and positionality? Yeah. Positionality. It's funny. I, I the editor didn't want to use that word. But I said, we must use that word. He just thought it was too academic. But I said, that, that is the word, right? And what, and the, I think the quote I had was, what is the positionality that allows you to think that stepping into a room with armed people is a good thing to do? It's not a position of being a Black woman in America, right? I mean, from this position, you know, stepping into a room of armed white men is, is not an exercise for increasing my safety. It is absolutely an exercise for decreasing my safety. And the fact that, that, so, so I am always thinking about positionality. I am always thinking about space. That's just, I think that, I don't know, speaking for myself, that's part of being a black woman in America, especially if you are constantly interacting in white spaces, you're always aware. I'm always aware when I step into a room, who's there and who's not. It's not, it doesn't rise to a level of fear all the time, but it always rises to a level of awareness. It, it you know, it damn well better. Um, if you want to remain safe. And so I wanted to front load that, right? Because that's a reality, I believe, for most Black people in this country, and it certainly is for me. And so I just wanted to front load that, to put it out there um, so that the reader had to confront it in a way that, that I that I have to confront it, that we confront it all the time. And yeah, so when I, when I stepped into that gun club, my first question is, who's here? Because who's here shapes my safety. And so that's why I put it in there. I try to be, I, I don't even know if honest is the word, but I, I, yeah, I try to be honest. I try to be, I, I almost want to say nakedly honest in my writing because I don't know what the point is otherwise. Wow. I really don't. Wow. Like, 
Ooh, ooh. Like that was just several. There's so many pieces that I'm thinking about. I have like a list of questions that I've color coded. Like the color coding is not doing anything for me right now because my brain is just like bouncing, you know, like underlying learning that we all have to do, this awareness that we have, you know, like, um, and in terms of like the obliviousness on the other hand that people are allowed to like be on, like, the the fact that you know they're talking about like oh we'll keep you safe you know like this is fine you know like everything's cool it's like well and even to go so far as to deny people's like feelings of uneasiness you know like like when a cop pulls up to you or you get pulled over and you're noticeably scared and they're like well why are you scared you know like this obliviousness that people are allowed to have like in these settings it literally costs life like it literally right and so right thinking about this you know the why would you be scared stance, you know, you quote James Baldwin, like all safety is an yep. illusion, like the fact that anything could pop off at any time. Yep. What do you think about that? Like there's this whole ingrained anxiety, you know, that we have that people are oblivious to and they give you flack for expressing. It's what very, it's very, it's very rich. So I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, that Baldwin called that that this goes back to your question mark about positionality right only you know what positionality allows you to have that kind of what baldwin says is it's really innocence right it's a willful innocence to believe that bad things that happen don't happen violence doesn't happen right that you have to be innocent and baldwin said anyone who has reached the age of adulthood and is still innocent is really morally i, I forget the word he used but your monster has turned himself i think he says has turned himself into a moral monster so so there's a point at which this obliviousness, i.e. willful innocence, becomes a moral much. And yeah, sorry, but I mean, and, and, and that is, a, that is a, a state of being that is not open to any, I would say, thoughtful Black person or person of color. In the same way that in some ways it's not open to any woman. A woman cannot operate in the world. You can't walk down the street in the same kind of obliviousness that a man can. You, you know, your safety, you have to have some kind of awareness. So these, this just is the reality of life. Um, at the same time, I think there is a strength in acknowledging that all safety is an illusion. And I think part of the biggest problem in our country, I think what we're seeing right now is a tantrum against people not wanting to accept that. People, you know, the irony, right, the, the accusation that, that, you know, students on campus want safe spaces. The truth is the average American, and particularly I would say the average white American, wants a safe space. And there is no safety. And if we could all just accept that, all safety is an illusion. I actually think we could get further, right? That, that there's no safety in life. There's no guarantees, right? There, there aren't. That's, that's what makes life so precious and so valuable. And if we really embrace that, I think we would actually be further along instead of demanding, I, you know, that I, that I have a right to be protected. No, you don't. That, that's not life. That's not life. I have to rewrite my thesis now. <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Yeah, the whole issue of safe spaces, we could talk about some other time. But I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I'm very, you know, I, when I'm in my class, I told my students, your, your being is safe, but your, your opinions, your, your beliefs, your, these things are not safe, nor should they be safe. They should not be safe, right? They should be open to challenge, you know, not your, not your, not your humanity, of course. Your humanity is safe in this space in my classroom. But even when we're talking about like humanity, you know, like the dehumanization of people is like literally what we're talking about, you know, like it's like all of those different things, like 
they combine like what you're ta- what you're saying what you're talking about the only acceptable stance for black folks is like resistance suffering you know like this oh, yeah. like having to do the yeah. thing the dance with the people you know like yeah this is blowing my mind because I definitely 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 agree with what you're saying and I want to think more about like what a classroom space needs to be you know in order to encourage this kind of like challenging the thoughts and beliefs that you're saying yeah yeah well, well, you had a classroom space in in sort of like the gun safety. Tra- I mean, even the term gun safety training, like classes, <laughs> but, right? But right at the beginning, the instructor, you know, he, he goes around and says, OK, well, why are you here? Yeah. And the way that you write it, obviously, it's being asked of you in a different way than, say, like the the 20 something or like the young white kids who just randomly are there. And you take a lot of time to uh, allow the reader to be there with you. Can you say a little bit more about the why are you here and why do you want a gun? Basically this idea of why do you want a gun being asked of you repeatedly over and over again, even when you go and get the license. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that's part of it, right? Why do you want a gun? Why are you here, right? Because the question is asked differently of a, of a Black woman, of a Black person than it is of a white man. I think I say in the piece, um, and you'll have to forgive me because what this is as a slight tangent, when I write something, I pour everything into it. And then when it's done, I just like purge Out of it from my yeah. brain. Right. So you probably know the piece better than I do at this point. <laughs> I, I did that with my novel once that people would come up to me and say, why did this happen? I would say, really, that happened. I have no, I have no <laughs> idea. I don't remember. So um, so I'm trying to remember right now. But but that part about, yeah, why do you want a gun being asked differently? by the instructor in the class, um, and more so, I think, by the police officer when I went to actually get my, my license. I, I, you know, I saw him trying really hard not to ask it, but he couldn't restrain himself, right? I say in the piece, I was ready for him to, like, not give it to me, but he, he did. Because, it, it, which is why I had to put in all the history. The history of it, you can't, you can't explain any of this without going into the history of this country and the history of Black, black oppression and control and violence and white violence and how white violence is heralded and heroic and celebrated and black violence is, is pathologized and, and criminalized. And even when it's in self-defense and, you know, all of that, it continues now, right? There is no good, acceptable way for black people to protest. I think I said that in there, except that quiet suffering, um, certainly not violence. It, it's cliche, but every time something happens like the the trucker convoy in Canada, you have to imagine, you know, Black people constantly say to each other, imagine if Black people did that, right? right? Imagine if a bunch of Black people tried to shut down Toronto. What do you think would happen? You think they would treat them with kid gloves? I don't think so. Those people would be dead, right? Imagine if a bunch of Black people stormed the United States Capitol. Do you think what, I mean, th- this is just, to us, this is irrefutable. It's irrefutable. And it's all tied into, ex- again, who is allowed to be violent in this country and who is not? And so that's what I was really trying to grapple with. Who's allowed to be violent in their self-defense? The, the castigation of Malcolm X is a perfect example of that. Even today, if you ask people, because I teach the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I always begin the class by asking students, what do they know about Malcolm X? Oh, he was violent. He hated white people. You know, he was a racist. You know, none of this is true. Um, Malcolm X was for Black self-defense. And if you're for self-defense you're, and you're a Black person, 
you're violent, you're horrible. If you're for self-defense and you're a white person, you're Patrick Henry. Give me liberty, give me death, right? So it's all, it's all interwoven. When I'm exploring these things, as I said, I'm trying to make connections for myself and understand it. Why am I feeling this way? Why is this person reacting to me in this way? Why am I reacting to them in that way? All of us are creatures of the society in which we live and our positionality within that society. And that has to all be surfaced. So that's what I'm trying to do. I recently had my first like gun class experience, like as well, probably in like October. And it was a women's class, you know, because they recognize like women would not maybe want to shoot next to men, whatever, like whatever they realized. But all the gun instructors, the actual like shooting time instructors, these were all men, like, and some of them were cops. And like, all of that did come to the surface. And I'm trying to aim. I'm like, ah, like, what, what am I doing? You know, like, is this, am I, you know, inviting a gaze that I already like am tired of at this point, you know, like, yeah, there was a whole surface of things. And so like, it has me thinking like, do we need like classes for only folks of color? Like, is that like, would the emotional part of this like be helpful to surface before like going on a gun journey? Like I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know. Because I definitely want to do more shooting. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Cause I don't even know if I do. I still hate mm. guns. I, I, you know, I, I still hate guns right now. And I, I, I'll be frank with you. I haven't touched one since then. Wow. Um, so you know, and I tried to be open with all of that too, right? That this is, I'm not, you know, I, I have no neat, I, I, and I hope it didn't come across that way. I have no neat, this is not a neat journey from A to B, A to Z. This is a, this is a grappling. I try to grapple on the page because I'm honestly grappling. I, I, I think society, I think America would be far, far, far better with far, far, far fewer guns. <laughs> you know, if I could vote to get rid of all of them, I would. But I can't. So I live here and I it's not about coming to a conclusion, but it's about asking the question of myself and of the reader. Asking the question, why would a black woman who hates guns go and get her gun license? And I did. Why would I? Right. Um, what has driven me to that point? I don't think this is a celebratory. For me, I didn't feel like this is a cell in some ways. And I think I might have said this. It felt like a defeat, you know, to come to that. Is it okay to also ask you about the ending part? Um, Sure. Because it was just really beautiful and intense at the same time. This idea of the image of you on your porch in the possible civil war with your scotch and taking people as they come. It was so intense. I I just want to ask about how did you get to those words and to that image? It's the way I felt, you know, watching the attack on the United States Capitol. I remember that vividly, being at home and watching that on TV and just going, wow, this is where we are, right? If they can attack there, what's to keep them from running over anything and anybody? And if that comes, what am I going to do, right? That, that was really the question. And so I, you know, I, I got to that image because that's where I was feeling, you know, as I say in the piece, joking with my husband, but not really joking, right? You know, he, he's like, well, you know, if we, if we do this, if we get this weapon, um, you'll have to keep training. And I'm like, I'm not trying to become a marksman. I don't expect to survive, right? I've had a good life. I feel very blessed. Um, it's a, but it's about what is worth defending? You know, that, that's really what I, that's why I ended it that way, because that's where I felt. Right. That's the question I was wrestling with. The two questions of the piece are, how did I come to this? And now that I'm here, what is worth defending? 
the piece I'm writing now is about Black people having a, there's two pieces, but one is about what I say, Black people having a dysfunctional relationship with America, right? Because we're, we're constantly saying, we love America, but it doesn't love us back. And I'm like, well, that's a, that's an abusive relationship, right? I mean, you know, if you love somebody, they don't love you back. That's an abusive relationship. So we're in an abusive relationship with our, our own country. And yet here we are. So we do, my, my point being that I do love this country and I'm willing to defend the part about it, that the myth about it, that had the potential to be real. Um, so I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, Mark. I mean, the, the, I came to that image just because it was where I was at. Yeah. Well, it seems like, like you can tell reading this, it's like, oh my God, like there's dissonance at every single turn, you know? But when you're thinking about like, because like you would have a physical gun to protect, you know, an idea, you know, right. this, whereas other people are like, oh, I need a physical gun to protect my physical right. body. Right. And also shoot physical body. Right. You know, right. like, and it seems like that, like, right. it seems like that difference is, is like part of the piece, part of the grapple yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, That's very this funny. idea of you like saying, can you be angry without being violent or can you be, you know, you know, violent without being angry and that like that too, you know, when you layer those things on top of each other, like guns are a political act for more than one reason, you right. know? Like I would right. find myself agreeing with the gun owner, with the NRA, with the police who I amazingly have to ask for position, like ask for permission about my moral character from the police, right. like from right. the NRA. Like I, you know, potentially am matching up with these people, but they're right. having a completely different experience when it comes to what gun ownership means. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. So the question is, yeah, what, what do we all mean when we, by these abstract words we use about mm -hmm. freedom and, and, and all these kind of questions. And, and, and I believe in these, I believe in these things as passionately as anybody on the other side, mm -hmm. but my definition is different. Wait. And so that's exactly right. What I want to defend, to answer your question, Mark, now I remember is, again, them walking through the, the Capitol chanting, our house, our house. This is either everybody's house or it's nobody's. It, and it has to be that way. It either has to be everybody's house or nobody's. The country cannot continue being one group's house. Yeah, writing this piece, though, at this time and then putting it out into the world, um, yeah. the reaction must have been just a lot of things. And so yeah. can you talk a little bit about the reaction that you have received? Yeah. And, you know, if I had to do it again, I'm not sure I would put it out. I have this really useful thing in the same way that when I write something, I forget about it. When I'm writing, I don't think about how it's going to be perceived. I really don't. I'm really working it out on the page for myself. And I'm not, I'm not anticipating the reaction. Um, you would think I would have learned by now, but every, every time it, it, it reappears, it's a, it's a gift and a curse for writers. So I didn't think about it um, until it gets published. And then you're like, oh crap. Um, and so um, to, the short version is that I, it, it, not because of this piece, but this piece was part of the fodder used against me in the, this past fall when I was attacked by um, several um, right-wing medias for being um, politically divisive and anti-white. It had to do with me being promoted to dean at, at my college. And so it really wasn't about me. It was just, this is really part of a larger attack on higher education. Wow. It really doesn't have anything about doing, but I was fodder. And the, you know, and this is, in fact, is part of the attack on education in general. We're seeing this anti-critical race theory, all of this attack on, on education, on history, on truth. 
And I got caught up in that as so many Black women, so many Black men, so many scholars of race are. But this was one of the pieces used against me to cast me as being anti-white and politically divisive. And so, you know, with that comes the hate mail, the threats, all of that kind of stuff. It's not fun. It's horrifying when you're going through it. And it is also, in a way, heartbreaking because I was, I don't know why I thought I was more, the, the last thing I'll say about this, because I'm writing about it now, as I said, um, which is the ultimate revenge. My husband said he knew I would be okay when I started writing about it. Because for a while, I didn't want to write about it. And I said, I'm not going to write anymore. What's the point, right? What's the point in pouring your blood out? You know, because you work hard. And like I said, I really try. You put this stuff out there and then, you know, you get grief for it. What's the point, right? Um, but but all of, which, all of which is to say the heartbreaking thing about it was that in order to keep writing, in order to keep investigating these things and trying to explain them, it, it in and of itself, it means that you still believe there's a chance that, pe- that the country can be saved. If you drive me to the point where I don't want to write it anymore, it means I give up. And that's the heartbreaking thing. It seems like you do have some, not necessarily hope, but it seems like you are still in there and you're still writing and fighting. And I guess maybe as a last question is, where do you feel like you are in your writing and um, and in this fight, if it is a fight for you? Yeah, it is a fight. And I think what, what where I am is, is, is a shift. What I, what I think I realize now is um, that I have been fighting. I mean, in some ways, I really think I've been fighting this since I was 16, right? Like I've been talking and writing and saying these things since I was 16. And for a long period of my life, people, you know, during the 80s and 90s, everybody's like, oh, racism has been solved. What are you talking about? So you have to understand that I've been in the battle for a long time and I'm tired. I'm tired. Um, and I don't know that I have any hope for America, to be honest with you. But I do have hope for Black people. Yeah. And so, and so the shift in my writing is to write to us, to write to us, to save us, wow. to guide us. I do believe one has to have, if not, I, I don't like the word hope, but one has to have something in order to keep writing. You have to have belief or possibility or something. Um, and it's hard for me to have that for this country. It really is. But it's, it's not hard at all for me to have that for my people. Thank you so much for that. Sarai, do you have any other questions? No. I just like, every time, every time like we get to do an interview, like there's the, the reading of the essay, you know, and then the talking to the, talking to the person and it always comes back to like a liberatory stand, like no matter what, like it always comes back down to like what we define as freedom and not just like becoming like them, like you said, you know, like defining that for ourselves and making sure it's for us. And that like what you said is a huge shift, like not centering the white people is like a exactly. huge shift, you exactly. know, and it's exactly. a fundamental one. It's a fundamental shift, you know, it is. And so like, I super appreciate that aspect of the need, you know, if we're going to get there, like you, we got to just like, boop, like, because yep. one of the things I was going to say is like, oh, what would you have white people do? And then I was like, I don't care. Like, what would you have me do? You know what I mean? Like, what would you, like, what would you have us do? You know? And that's why I think the image of you with the shotgun is so important because we've taken that stance over and over again. Like right. if we have to use violence, we will. Like, it's amazing that we're not using violence yet, you know, but that's a different story, you know? So I just like, I really appreciate the connection back to like feeding into what we want to grow as opposed to continuously focusing on people who won't. Right. Exactly. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Again, I'd like to thank Professor McLaren for thoughtfully and generously sharing your views about your outstanding article. Also, appreciation goes to Sarai. I love collaborating with you on these interviews with authors. Article Clubbers, thank you very much for listening. And if you were moved by Professor McLaren's words, please reach out at mark at highlighter.cc. And for more information about Article Club, you can go to articleclub.org. Have a great week, everybody.